So the sermon text for today is Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 17 and read through 21. And it's on page 1787 in the Pew Bible if you want to join there or on your mobile device. Read with me um, as we read from um, Paul's words in Philippians. Following Paul's example. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await as Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Here ends this reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you today, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. It's a privilege to be together with you and to be able to open God's word. Uh, as we do so, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we are so grateful for the good news and for the hope that is found in this passage. Lord, we eagerly await uh, the return of our King. And we ask that as we look at this passage today that you would help us to understand it. And not only that you would help us to understand it, but that you would help us to internalize it and that we would be changed by it. So we pray now for the presence of your Holy Spirit to be working among us as we hear, to illuminate what is in this passage to help us see Jesus clearly. Lord, we desire to be people who live with eager expectation and hope for your return. So do that now among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can tell a lot about where a person is from by looking at the way they live. In other words, there are certain outward sort of markers, identifiers, that if you look at them, you can identify, you can figure out something about where this person is from, where their citizenship lies. So one of those things would be uh, language. Maybe you hear someone speaking a different language that you don't know, and you can identify, okay, that sounds Eastern European, that sounds East Asian, that sounds Middle Eastern, that sounds African, and you can tell by their language something about where they're from. This is also true uh, as far as dialect and accent go. Even if you're listening to someone who's speaking English and you can identify, okay, that person is British, that person is Australian, that person is Irish. Or you may think of someone in the States and, and think, okay, that person has a very strong southern twang about them. Or that person has that sort of quintessential Boston, New York accent. And interestingly, uh, those who don't live here in the Midwest, they think we sound weird too. (laughs) Uh, So we're all just a bunch of weirdos. 
But you can identify where someone is from in part by uh, things like the language and the dialect and the accent. You can tell by a person's pace of life. There's sort of a southern slow and there's the New York minute and they're very different ways of life. You can tell by looking at the person's uh, relationship with time. Some people like the meeting to start on time and like to end exactly on time. And then for other people, it's true that the meeting starts when everybody shows up. And the party's over when everybody leaves and says that it's over. (laughs) So there's all these different markers, these different identifiers that can help us know something about where a person is from, where their citizenship lies. And there's more than what I've even just mentioned. Uh, But I think the, the, the point is clear that our citizenship is always expressed in the way we live. The places where we are from, our citizenship, those places have a deeply formative and shaping effect on us. And the places where we find citizenship, those affect the way that we live. This is true in some of these sort of surface level areas like I've just mentioned a few moments ago. But the Bible says that this is true on an even deeper, more fundamental level as well. One of the major themes that runs throughout the Bible is a theme of kingdom. And sort of baked into the cake of the idea of kingdom is the idea also of citizenship. And so the Bible talks about these two kingdoms, uh, the kingdoms of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And and our citizenship, the way we live, would uh, give some indication of which of those kingdoms we belong to. And that's what we see the Apostle Paul doing in this passage here today, is he's making a contrast between citizens of two different kingdoms. And he's showing us something about what defines these people who live as a part of the earthly kingdom. What defines the people who live as a part of the heavenly kingdom. And so that's what we're going to look at as we look at this passage today, is we're going to see uh, him showing us some different characteristics, some defining marks of people who live in these different kingdoms. So first, let's think together about what defines those who are citizens of the earthly kingdom. We see in verse 18... Paul says, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. And here he really gives us in these verses uh, four things that would characterize, that would define a person who is uh, a part of the earthly kingdom. And so the first thing he shows us is that their lives are headed down the path of destruction. Verse 19, very clearly he says, their destiny is destruction. And I think that when he talks about this, this is something of a broad sort of overarching picture of the totality of their lives are headed towards complete and utter ruin. This is the same kind of language that we see in Psalm 1, where the psalmist makes a contrast between the righteous person, that is the person who loves God and obeys his instruction, and then there's the wicked person, the person who does not love God, who does not obey his instruction. And the righteous person, we're told, everything they do flourishes. Everything they do prospers. And we're told that the path, the way of life of the wicked person leads to what? Leads to destruction. So the path of this person who's a part of this earthly kingdom is a path that leads to destruction. Secondly, he says their lives are ruled by their desires. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that the Bible does, uh, talks about desires in, uh, in two different ways. Uh, our desires are a good thing. 
We are created as physical beings in a material world, and there is so much good things to see and to experience and to touch and to taste. There are so many good things about living in a physical, material world, and God has designed us that way. So the desires we have themselves are not in and of themselves corrupt. It's not as if wanting things or desiring things is bad, but what Paul is talking about here, when he describes someone, he says their God is their stomach. Think about, the, uh, think about hunger pangs. And when you have hunger pangs, when you're hungry, your body has this sort of visceral, uh, just it, it's a desire, it's an urge, it's a craving to go find something and to make it go away. And Paul is saying uh, that the desires of these folks who are members of this earthly kingdom, citizens of the earthly kingdom, that their lives are not just, uh, their lives are not where their desires are in their rightful place. The desires that they experience are twisted and distorted to, elevated in some ways to a godlike status. So they are enslaved to their desires instead of their desires being expressed in a God-honoring way. So their lives are headed down the path of destruction. Their lives are ruled by their desires. Thirdly, he says, they are proud of shameful behavior. Their mind, uh, their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Now, a lot of commentators think that uh, this reference to, to, um, to glory and shame here uh, is, has to do with sexual ethic. In other words, the way a person expresses and embodies their sexuality. And if that's true, then what Paul is saying here is that these folks who are citizens of the earthly kingdom, that the way that they express their sexuality cuts against the grain of the way God has designed both their bodies and their relationships. And by practicing these things, they don't just practice them, they are proud of them. They're proud of doing things that ought to make them blush, that ought to, uh, that ought to be felt as shameful, but they don't. They're proud of, they are proud of shameful behavior. Lastly, he says, they live only for the here and now. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So notice it's not just the, it's not just the desires, the urges, the cravings they have that are sort of twisted and distorted, but it's the very thinking. The way that they think, their thinking is set on earthly things. So it, in, in other words, he's sort of painting this picture of the totality of their lives are lived in this sort of twisted, distorted way that's not in line with the way God has designed them. They live only for the here and now. They live only within the horizons of what they can see in the material world. And these are the things that Paul says define or characterize a person who is a part of uh, what he calls the earthly, uh, the earthly kingdom. I think it would be a mistake for us if we were to hear this and to think, boy, uh, that's nice, but we don't really, we've sort of moved on from these things. Uh, these don't really define us, they don't define our culture. And I think that would be a mistake for us because it doesn't take very much looking for us to see uh, that our culture, <laughs> that the, the, the country where we live, our culture, uh, we are ruled by our desires. We live in a highly consumeristic culture where we are taught from the earliest age. We are formed through the liturgy of shopping. And through advertisement, we are taught we are sort of strung out to want and desire things that we didn't even know we needed until we saw the advertisement for them. We're told from a very young age that you, know, you, need, to, you need to follow your heart. You need to do whatever makes you happy and you know, only you can define that for yourself. And so we sort of live in this, in this 
culture where we're told that, you know, like if you want it, if you desire it, if you crave it, you should, you should go participate. You should go partake of that thing. You should be able to do whatever you want. We are ruled by our desires. In addition to this, uh, we are proud of things that are shameful. I don't have enough time to really thoughtfully engage in the subject of sort of the broad cultural sexual ethic. So I'm not going to try to say anything about it. Uh, I'm actually working right now on a series for the future where we'll we'll talk about some of that together. Uh, But just suffice it to say uh, that just very simplistically, uh, the sexual ethic that is sort of out there in the culture around us contains things that the Bible would say are shameful. The way that we express sexuality in our particular culture uh, is in a way that is largely not in line with God's design for our sexuality, for our bodies, for our relationships, and we're very proud of that as well. And it can be said sort of just broadly uh, that many people who live in our culture are headed down the path of destruction, headed down the path of complete and utter ruin. So this is what Paul says characterizes those who are members of the earthly kingdom, and I think we have to recognize that uh, even though it expresses itself in vastly different ways, these things that Paul says characterize those who are members of the earthly kingdom, those were not just for them. We see these things expressed in our culture in just very different ways. But it's nonetheless true that these things are what define, what characterize those who are a part of the earthly kingdom. And I think we, we have to recognize, on the one hand, yes, this is true, and at the same time, we can't stop here. Okay, if we just stopped by looking at what Paul says define those who are a part of the earthly kingdom, we would be in a very bad place. And this is not just what Paul, this is not all that Paul says in this passage either. I think if we stopped here by just saying, yes, that's what defines those people who are a part of the earthly kingdom, we would be in, in trouble. Paul doesn't stop here. I think that if we stopped with just looking at this, we would miss out on what is for us here today probably the most important part of this passage. Notice Paul's heart in this. Notice Paul's tone in this. On the one hand, he uses some language that seems uh, pretty, pretty sort of pointed, right? He says, he, he describes those who are not followers of Jesus as enemies of the cross. He uses language of destruction and shame and all these language, these uh, words that would seem sort of pointed, uh, maybe sort of pejorative, maybe you might think, boy, that sounds pretty condescending, it sounds pretty judgy, pretty judgmental for someone to you know, describe someone that way. But notice that this is not all Paul says in this passage. Notice the tone, notice the, the, the heart that he has here. Look in verse eight, 18 rather, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even what? with tears. So Paul's tone here in this passage is not one of judgment. His tone here is not one of condemnation on those who are not followers of Jesus. His tone is that of heartbreak. The word that's translated here, uh, with tears, this is a verb that literally means to weep. It means to cry. In Mark chapter five, this verb is used Jairus is a synagogue leader and his young daughter has died. And he urges Jesus to come and Jesus arrives at the house and her lifeless body is sitting inside. And it says that the family was around 
and they were crying at the death of their daughter. That's the same word that Paul uses here. It's the same word that is used of Peter. After he denied Jesus the third time, and he's overcome, he's overwhelmed with shame and guilt, and he goes outside and it says that he wept. That's the same word that Paul uses here to describe his heart, his posture towards those who he describes as enemies of the cross. So we have to see that this is Paul's tone, his heart is not one of judgment, it's not one of condemnation, but his tone here is a tone of heartbreak. I think we have to recognize that as we see Paul holding up here both strong conviction as well as compassion, we have to recognize that there's a, there's a danger of a sort of running off the rails on either side. There's a danger of being people who are so filled with compassion that we loosen our grip on our convictions. That's not what Paul does here. And I suspect that in, in a church like ours, this is probably less the temptation for us. I think the temptation for many of us would be on the opposite side. The danger for us is that we would see Paul's, we would hold all of Paul's convictions but not have any of his compassion. That we would hear him say, you know, their lives are lived on the path towards destruction. And we would say, yeah. We'd pound our fists on the table and say, yep, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. That we would hear Paul talk about their behavior being shameful and say, yep, they sure are proud of shameful things. And there's a danger that we would hear this and we would hold all of Paul's conviction and not hold any of his compassion. That we would not view people who are not members of the kingdom of God, who are not followers of Jesus, the way that Paul views them. When we have this strong sense of conviction, without the compassion, what that leads to is cultural war Christianity. And what that is is where we set up other people from different political or social or ideological camps, we set them up as the enemy. And the goal then becomes to win. The goal becomes to beat them. And so what do we do? We try and leverage in whatever ways we can to get people from our tribe into political or cultural or social positions of power. And we live in this sort of culture war where we've created other people as the enemy. And Paul here in this passage demonstrates none of this. He demonstrates none of the setting up other people as an enemy and being judgmental or being condescending towards them. What we see here is that he does hold strong conviction. And at the very same time, he is overwhelmed with compassion. The strength of his conviction is met with the depth of his compassion. He's simultaneously both filled with conviction and filled with compassion. And friends, I, I, I think that especially right now in, in sort of the cultural setting that we live in, friends, we have to be, we have to continue to labor to be and, and remain a church that is filled with compassion and conviction. We have to be a church that, like Paul, holds up, that, that does not think we need to loosen our grip on what the Bible teaches in order to love people well, but we love people well at the same time that we are filled with uh, conviction over right doctrine and what the Bible teaches. We have to be the church that can live with both compassion and conviction at the same time. And this is what Paul models for us. And he says, follow my example. Pattern your life after me. And he says in the book of 1 Corinthians, pattern your life after me as I pattern my life after Jesus. So we pattern our lives after Paul by demonstrating both the, the solid 
uh, clinging to right doctrine, clinging to conviction, as well as weeping over those who are not followers of Jesus. And the way that we approach those who are not followers of Jesus, especially out in the public square, is not characterized by finger-pointing and condemnation, but by compassion and love and mercy and, and, and thoughtful, nuanced conversation and dialogue. Friends, we have to, as, as, as our culture becomes more polarized and more politicized in everything, we have to be a church that continues to remain to be faithful to what the Bible teaches and filled with compassion and has the heart of Paul, the heart of compassion that he demonstrates here. So this is what he says characterized these members of the earthly kingdom, but we see not only just what characterizes them, we see also his heart for them, his compassion in the midst of that. And the second thing we see in the passage is this, we see what defines those who are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Notice the contrast, verse 19. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So what characterizes us, Paul says, is number one, we live as a counterformed community. What I mean by that is this. Whether we know it or not, whether we are aware of it or not, every single one of us is continually being formed and shaped into the beliefs and the values of something, someone, the culture around us. We may not use this language, but every single person is being discipled. Okay, so it's not as if these Christian people over here, they care about formation, they care about discipleship, and then the rest of the world who would consider themselves not religious, they don't really care about discipleship. Everybody is being discipled. Everybody is being formed into some values, into some belief system. And what Paul says here is that as followers of Jesus, we choose to be formed by an alternative set of values. We choose to live as a counterformed community that's formed by different values than the world sort of broadly around us. We live as a counterformed community. And he says this sort of as a stick in the eye of Caesar. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Remember that the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. And what that meant was that those who lived in the city of Philippi, had, uh, who had citizenship in the city of Philippi, were also citizens of the city of Rome itself. So the seat of power, the seat of influence and culture making in the Roman Empire, they were citizens of Rome. And that came with all the benefits of being a Roman citizen, as well as all the expectations that you will live as a person who perpetuates the beliefs and the values and the culture and the ethos and the Roman way of life wherever you go. There was expectation with that. And so, get the picture here. They are citizens of Rome, living in the city of Philippi, who were expected to live by the beliefs and the values of Rome. And Paul writes to them and says, reminds them, your true citizenship is not in the Roman Empire. Your true citizenship is not in Rome. So he's cutting at the knees of the Roman Empire. He's essentially demoting the Roman Empire to a subservient place to being citizens of the kingdom of God. He tells them, your citizenship is in heaven and you live in the city of Philippi and instead of living by the beliefs and the value system of the Roman Empire, you are to live as a counterformed community. Meaning that when, when, there, when push comes to shove, 
When your citizenship in the kingdom of God comes into conflict with your citizenship in the kingdom of Rome, you have to remember where your true citizenship lies. Because there will be times where what is expected of you in the Roman Empire as a citizen of this country, you have to remember that there will be times where, where that expectation is you would do things that are not in line with how God has designed you to live. And so you choose to live differently. So he reminds them where their citizenship lies, reminds them that they are to live as a counterformed community and their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven will express itself in the way that they live even as they live in the city of Rome. So they are a counterformed community and I think Paul would say the exact same thing to us if you were here today. If Paul wrote a letter to our church family, he would say, remember your citizenship is in heaven. Your primary citizenship, your true citizenship is not in the United States of America or wherever else you may hold citizenship. Your citizenship is in heaven. And of course, that doesn't mean we despise our earthly citizenship. It doesn't mean that we renounce our citizenship as members of the United States. But it means that we, we keep it in its proper perspective. And we live, remember that we are citizens first of the kingdom of heaven. So he says what defines us as citizens of the earthly kingdom is we live as a counterformed community, but then secondly, that we live with eager expectation for the return of our king. And this is the best part. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The good news that this passage points us to is that Jesus has the power to bring all things under his control, which means that Jesus has authority over all of the things in our lives that make us feel out of control. And those things are numerous, aren't they? Jesus has authority over all the things that we realize uh, that, that make us realize that we have far less control than we ever thought we did. You know, we live with this illusion that we have control over our lives. <laughs> and so often we're reminded that that's just not true. We have far less control than we think. And the good news is that Jesus has authority, has control, has power over all those things that would make us feel so out of control. Jesus has authority over sin. He has authority over death. He has authority over evil. He has authority over the evil one. And one day those will all be subjected to him. We don't see that now. We don't experience currently the reality of the rule and the reign of Jesus. But the good news of the Bible is that one day Jesus will return and everything will be put in its proper place. The world will be, will be made new. Jesus will make all things right. And it's not just a sort of cosmic everything out there. What does Paul say? By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So it's not just this cosmic everything out there. Our very bodies will be made new. The bodies that we have that are so broken, our bodies carry the weight of so many things in them. And Jesus promises that he will return and that our bodies will be made new and we'll be able to experience the resurrection power of Jesus as we receive new bodies. What this passage points us to is that when Jesus returns, when everything is subjected to him, when he makes everything new, there's a lot of benefits that are going to come 
in that moment. It's going to be glorious. There'll be lots of benefits, but the point that Paul is making here is that is that our eager longing is not for his benefits. Our eager longing is for Jesus himself. We don't await the benefits that Jesus brings us. We await our Savior. We await Jesus himself. He is the one that we expect, and we eagerly await for him because he loved us and because we love him. We see Paul saying in chapter 2, this Christ hymn, which is the uh, the center of the book of Philippians that has tentacles, that has roots that go out into every single part of this book. He tells us about Jesus. He says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so we see the good news of the, the extent to which God went to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness and his love for us. We see the love of God given to us in that Jesus took on human flesh and accompanied us in our humanity. And then he suffered and he died for us. And remember that this Christ him, everything Paul describes here is not just vaguely for humanity, although that's true. What should strike us about this is that what is true in this Christ him is not just true sort of broadly for quote unquote people, it's true for me. And it's true for you if you are a person who's given your life and your allegiance to Jesus. This is what Paul reminds us of here is our eager longing is not for his benefits, but our eager longing is for him and we love him because he first loved us. We love him because in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our idolatry and the sin that exists in our lives, when we were unlovable, God loved us anyways. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act He didn't wait for us to figure things out. He didn't wait for us to meet him halfway to sort of put some of the pieces into place and then just ask for his help to sort of top it off. No, when we were dead in our sins, Jesus came and suffered and died for us. And that's how we know the love of God. And as we think about the love of God for us that's in this passage, what could be the response other than that we love him? Seeing what he has done for us, seeing how he loved us, the only response that makes any sense is that we would love him. You know, Caesar was given the title of savior also. The emperor was given the title of savior. I would venture to bet that pretty much nobody loved Caesar. Okay, you maybe feared Caesar, you revered him, you obeyed him because you knew the consequences. Think of the difference. What kind of savior Jesus is. He suffered and he died for us and so we await for his coming because we love him. We don't live in this kind of fear of him. We love him and so we await his coming. And each week we get to come to the communion table and we get to express our trust and our allegiance in Jesus. And as we come forward to receive the elements, this is a physical representation of the love of God for us that he sent us his son who suffered and who died in our place for our sin. And it's also a representation, a physical representation of the future hope that we have. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, I will not eat this meal with you until I eat it with you in the kingdom. So the meal that Jesus shared that last, last supper looked forward to another time when Jesus would be reunited with his people. 
and would experience that meal together. And so this meal we get to share today is, is a little shadow. It's a foretaste of life in the kingdom of God. It's a shadow. It's a foretaste of the communion we get to experience with him when he returns. And so we come forward today physically out of our seats and receive the physical uh, elements, the body and blood of Christ. And in doing so, we are reminded of just how much God loves us. And so as we see that, we are reminded of his love for us and we look forward with eager expectation to his return. As we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Our merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed by the things we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, Lord, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.